Um, anything else? All right. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free. Thank you for delivering us as you promised. Thank you for doing this and letting us know that it was ordained from eternity past and that our sense of assurance, our hope, our confidence is bolstered all the more. Thank you for these lessons, Father. We are most grateful and thankful for that cause that these lessons are tied to, our great hope to a cross 2,000 years ago that your son accomplished his good work on. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel Salvation Sanctification, Part 61. Uh, if you didn't catch Sunday, I listened to about half of it, um, jumped around a little bit uh, this morning. Uh, and uh, it was just a lot of good stuff in there. So if you didn't get it, or if you're looking for a do-over, certainly Sunday would be a good candidate. Uh, just some additional encouragement from Sunday. Go to Ephesians 3.11. Ephesians 3.11. He's on a very specific tact right now. The Spirit is in our souls. <clears throat> He's bringing to our remembrance some things from 40 or so hours ago of study, or 20 hours ago or so of study. Part 41, which, when, which was when we were studying uh, the salvation perspective proper. Ephesians 3.11 this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Up here on the board, the eternal purpose refers to the church's supreme purpose of glorifying God. We members have been predestined to partake in that activity. And that, so that gives us sort of that big picture, but it also ratchets us in as individuals of a, a team, if you would, uh, a team called the church, if you would, to, that is really meant to glorify God in time. Uh, that is our purpose. Let's finish this, though. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. We're going to talk about that. We're going to do some synthesizing this evening of some scripture, fantastic things on that. But we'll get there. In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through the, his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, not just your minds, think about that, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's not your minds in view, that's the heart. Remember the Bible makes a distinction. If there wasn't a distinction, it would always be minds or it would always be hearts. The Bible makes a distinction between the heart and the minds. And so we're on this tact sort of to, again, deliver us, which is part of sanctification proper, experientially speaking, to deliver us from our own tendency to become academic, our own tendency to become religious, in other words, and become cold, and he does not want that for us, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, not just your minds, and that you, 
being rooted and grounded in love. We'll get to that. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Again, to know the love of Christ which what? Surpasses knowledge. So if love was only knowledge, that would be it. It wouldn't be surpassable, right? But this love surpasses knowledge. You have to think about that. That's what Scripture says. That you may be, what? Filled up. Now we have the connective tissue to the filling. That Greek word, guess what? Pleuroo. Filled up to all the fullness of God. So there's a lot of things going on. If you look at verses 18 and 19, there's a lot of our lessons baked in there. If you've been following along, these things should be blowing up in your face, sort of exploding right off the pages. Think about it. You may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up, pleuroo, to all the fullness of God up here on the board. To give you a little bit more on that, verse 19, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, Christ's love is far beyond human intellect, far beyond human reason or thinking. It surpasses, that's that Greek word, hyperbalo, which means to transcend. So his love transcends any knowledge, any system of thinking. We might have all the Greek down pat, the Greek words, the Hebrew, whatever, the original language. We might have all the definitions sort of nicely and neatly categorized in our notebooks, but that doesn't mean anything. Paul says you're a clanging symbol if you have all that but don't have real love and so basically look at it that way to know the love of christ which surpasses knowledge christ's love is far beyond human intellect far beyond human reason or thinking it surpasses hyperbolo means to transcend we just lost the lights in the back i don't know why you want to check it out dj hopefully the kids aren't playing with anything Filled up to the fullness of God, compared with the fullness of Christ in verse 4.13 and the fullness of the Spirit in verse 5.18. Again, the verse here is, And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up, pleuroo, to all the fullness of God. Now we have filled up to the fullness of God. I can't concentrate. DJ, let's go. We've got to make it quicker than that. You done? We're being recorded here. What took so long? Oh, it popped? What's, what's, what's doing that? Where were we? Ephesians 3.19, And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up, pleuroo, to all the fullness of God. And again, filled up to the fullness of God, compared with the fullness of... Now, this is interesting. Even I had not noticed this before. The fullness of God, pleuroo, filled up, Greek word pleuroo. We've studied that how many times in the past? To get over one particular issue. Same Greek word, same basic concept that Paul, same writer articulates in two other places in the same passage, which means that he's got the same mindset. I hope you see this. 
The filling, in other words, is not just unique to the Spirit. There's a fullness of God and there's the fullness of Christ. Hmm. So go to, uh, hold your thumb, let's see the absolute truth about what Paul's language means about the filling of any of the three persons of the Godhead. Uh, Go to Ephesians 4.13. Ephesians 4.13. So we're just going to take that and we're going to compare Scripture to Scripture. Same guy, same book, right around the corner from each other. Ephesians 4.13. Until we attain, till we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to, guess what? The fullness of Christ. Same author, same Greek word, different person of the Godhead. Okay? Go to Ephesians 5.18. Most of you are familiar with this one. Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be what? Filled, pleuroo, with the Spirit. Same Greek word, same author, same book. Hopefully you see what the Spirit's pointing out right here. That you're filled with the Godhead. Okay, back to Ephesians 3.19 where we saw this. That's a very important point for some of you to continue to dwell on after this evening's message even. Ephesians 3.19, And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up Pleuroo to all the fullness of God. Again, what's Paul getting at here, up here on the board? Christ's love is far beyond human intellect, far beyond human reason or thinking. It surpasses, superbalo, transcends. So he's trying to get you to think spiritually, not just academically, not intellectually. There is an intellectual aspect. You're doing it right now. You're taking in the Word of God. You know how to read. Uh, You know how to take it in, you know how to hear, you know the language, you know communication skills, these kinds of things. Those are all intellectual realities. But that's not the transcendent nature of God's love. That's what he's been saying. The religious person stops there and says, I'll just get smarter and smarter and smarter, and the smarter I am about love, the more I know love. That's not true at all. You're to be filled up to the fullness of God. Compare the fullness of Christ, verse 4.13, and the fullness of the Spirit in 5.18. So it's fair to say from scriptural evidence that what Paul is getting at is far beyond human thinking even. Far beyond human thinking even. Ephesians 3.20 Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, For example, sanctify us beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So, in other words, the Spirit is saying this is not a thinking game. There is thinking involved, but this is not a thinking game. Okay? God's not some computer in the sky. He's not a heartless, unemotional God. He said, I'm going to make them in my image. Anybody in here not have some emotions? We all do, right? We're in his image. Where did we get it from? Who's the wellspring? He is. So why would we turn into robots? Why would we be academic robots if God, our creator, who created us this way, isn't and did not intend us to be? So concentrate for a moment. I was thinking about this. Being, the idea of being. 
being encouraged is a huge part of sanctification. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on right now in this world, and there's a lot of need, I believe, for encouragement. People don't need more money. People don't need better jobs. People don't need more friends. People don't need more spouses. They don't need more animals. They don't need more of anything. They accept. They need a lot of encouragement, and they need a whole lot more of Christ. So think about what practical sanctification means. Let's take this tack for a moment. On the board, if you are being encouraged daily, then you are being sanctified daily experientially. Think about that for a moment. If you get out of bed in the morning and you're encouraged some way, you feel encouraged about the spiritual life, you feel encouraged about your relationship with Jesus Christ, you feel encouraged about God's love for you, you feel encouraged that God is love. If you're encouraged, then guess what? You're being sanctified. That emotion, however you'd like to think about it, is part of your sanctification. So if you are being encouraged daily, then you are being sanctified daily. That's why a lot of people, don't be so hard. I know I spit venom sometimes. That's my job. I have to wake you up. Sometimes I have to shake you as a congregation. I'm going to smack you with the rod. That's my job. But don't be discouraged. Be encouraged always. So if you are being encouraged daily, then you are being sanctified daily, experientially. Consider the flip side. If you are discouraged, something's wrong. To whatever degree you're discouraged, something's missing. Something's wrong. God will never discourage a person for doing good. So the point is simple and hopefully edifying, but I'd be willing to bet a lot of you, it's possible you missed this very subtle point, so we're going to spend a little more time on it. The fact that you're more encouraged, let's say, today than you were yesterday is a a very real aspect of experiential sanctification. In other words, you feel better about whatever that means. If you feel stronger, more faithful, better, use your own language about your spiritual walk today than you did yesterday, that's a part of his sanctification. I'm not talking about you have a bad day, you know, yesterday was a really good day and today was a, you know, a sewer pipe day. I'm talking about the general nature of where you were, you know, a moment in time before. could be a year ago, five years, whatever you'd like to look back. He sanctified you. That should be encouraging to you, and that kind of encouragement is actually part of your experiential sanctification. It's part of the package of being sanctified. Ain't that awesome? That's part of it. So you see, we have to learn to recognize all facets of the way in which God sanctifies us, not just the ones that we prematurely think are viable proof points. You know, the, for, to the academic, it's like, well, I'm just going to learn more and more vocabulary. I'm going to memorize more and more scripture. And the more I have that, the more I'm sanctified. Eh, not necessarily at all. Someone else, it might be the more I, I don't know, pray repetitively. The more I, you know, cry tears of, I love Jesus all over everybody else around me. That's something, you know, whatever. Things can get warped and lopsided. But that's how man, often in his religion, cuts himself short. So the Spirit's basically saying, open your eyes. 
Open your eyes to all facets of sanctification. They're not all academic. They're spiritual. Do you really? All right. You think there's going to be a pop quiz at the gates of heaven? If you don't answer these questions correctly, you're not coming in. You think there's going to be a pop quiz every day in heaven? No. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to want to worship him. That's end of story. He's not going to be quizzing us about 15-syllable theological terms. He might have some things to say about that, but that's another story. So open your eyes. What do you think 1 Thessalonians 5.18 is all about? In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Put that in perspective. He wants you to be this person. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He wants you to be that person. In other words, that's who you are. I'm grateful for everything. I get up in the morning, I'm grateful. I go to bed at night, I lived another day, I'm grateful. God had a plan for me, I'm grateful that I was a part of it. God gave me more grace, I'm grateful. I'm grateful I'm breathing, I'm grateful I'm eating, I'm grateful I have a home, I'm grateful I have people that care about me, that love me, that I have family, and the list goes on and on. That's not an academic thing. That's life, and that's experience, experiential sanctification. A lot of aspects to sanctification, folks, that have a lot to do outside of even the pulpit. Passages like 1 Thessalonians 5.18 aren't just meant to stand as commands. I mean, it does say in everything give thanks. That's command form. But these things aren't meant to stand just as commands. They stand as the reason for your encouragement. Also, your very sanctification. Again, the point on the board, if you are being encouraged daily, then you are being sanctified daily, experientially. Consider the flip side. If you are discouraged, something's wrong. God will never discourage a person for doing good. Go to Romans 14.22. Romans 14.22. God will never discourage a person for doing good. Romans 14, 22. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Again, eating was the context, but hopefully you see the bigger principle. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So now you have to concentrate because we're going to be synthesizing some more. So we're going to take Romans 14, 23's whatever is not from faith is sin and synthesize it with some other scripture now. Go to Ephesians 2, 8. Okay, so keep that in mind. Whatever is not from faith is sin. We're going to synthesize a few things. We're going to take our time. Hopefully you see what the Spirit's getting at. All of this is to amplify what he's been talking about now for the last few lessons. It's a very subtle point, but it's an important one. I think a lot of people need to be delivered from it, obviously. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, 
How about Romans 12.3? Go there. Romans 12.3. So, by grace, through faith, Romans 12.3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Okay, So now we have not just the connective tissue between faith and grace, but now we have Scripture saying that it's God that gives us a measure of faith. Now, we don't all get the same kind or allotment of faith. Otherwise, that statement wouldn't be necessary. So, so far up here on the board, we have, in terms of synthesizing Scripture, point one, Whatever is not from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. Point two, faith is a grace gift, Romans 12, 3, Ephesians 2, 8. Let's get to our next passage now. Go to James 1, 17. James 1, 17. We're just going to walk some scripture. James 1, 17, scripture. We're going to compare scripture to scripture and see what pops out of this. And don't lose sight of what he's trying to say to you. James 1.17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Up here we add another point. Point three, every gift from God is perfect. So we have whatever is not from faith is sin. Faith is a grace gift. Every gift from God is perfect. Which means what? Faith. Is perfect. And then finally, go to James 3.17. James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay, then we have point four up here in the board. Point one, whatever is not from faith is sin. Two, faith is a grace gift. Three, every gift from God is perfect. Four, God's gifts are the seeds of good fruit. For example, encouragement. So, in other words, if you're being encouraged, then you're being sanctified. Your encouragement comes from a source, if you would, or the channel for grace, which is faith. Who opens up the channel? God does, because He gives you faith. God's gifts are the seeds of good fruit. For example, encouragement. So concentrate some more. These types of thoughts are why we spend all this time surveying Scripture not our human minds. This is why you come to class, folks. Because here's what happens, you ready? If you don't come to class and you don't read your Bible, you take whatever you think you know about God and you make up stuff. And then it becomes speculation, like in Romans 1, like the unbelievers. You become an inventor. The one that I see most often in people, especially intelligent people, is they take their experiences and they superimpose it on the Bible. And they say, this is why I have my doctrine, because I've seen this or that. 
That's the trouble of not using Scripture as the basis of what you think to be true. So again, these types of thoughts are why we spend all this time surveying Scripture, not our human minds. And frankly, folks, and I'm in the same boat, there are just going to be times where the Scripture makes no sense to you. You're going to say, there's no way that can be true. Because in my experience, and there it is already, right? It's X, Y, and Z. But God never lies. And God's word is never wrong. We do this both here in the local assembly and in our own Bibles on our own time. Survey scripture. I was reflecting on this. As you can imagine, at this point in my studies, I had a lot going on in my head. I'm like, there's a lot of things going on. There's going to be a lot of the sheep that are going to be pondering this for some time, which is good. I was thinking about this, though. It's funny, with the advent of technology, people spend a lot of time researching things on the Internet. If they are in the middle of a conversation nowadays, and a word or a topic comes up where there's confusion or debate, someone inevitably pops out their smartphone or their tablet and begins Googling for answers. Oh, no, no. Right? Maybe it's just my household. I don't know. But Google has become one of man's best friends. Always there for, quote, answers. Yet, why don't we treat the Bible that way? Seriously. Why don't we treat the Bible that way? When something's confusing us, or we are discouraged, let's say, for example, why don't we have the Bible strapped to our hip? Or at least our fingertips on that electronic device that is strapped to our hips. Like DJ has his Bible app on his phone. Why don't we go to the Bible app first instead of Google? If we're having troubles or we're confused or... I suppose there are a few things more depressing than feeling a sense of overwhelming discouragement... I think that's agreeable. So if there's truth to that, why not tap the wellspring of encouragement, the Word of God? So I want to do a little scenario planning here, just to prove this point. Suppose you're feeling a little beat up today. I mean, the people in this world have once again, you know, gotten the best of you. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Call a friend who's going to say something stupid like, let's go get a drink. Or let's go drink our sorrows away. Or let's go shopping with money we don't have. Oh yeah, by the way, in one year's time, 44% increase in credit card debt in the United States. $71 billion in one year alone in credit card debt. Maybe you should just turn to the Bible. You know what I'm saying? That's free. Just saying. Well, here's a superb idea, idea again. How about you, instead of doing those things, you put a Bible app on your phone, or you put a Bible near your bedstand, or you turn the television off. Don't turn on the Bible channel, because you'll get some weirdos. Except at 9 a.m., no, 7, where's Michelle? 7.30 on Channel 9, Seekonk, I think. Go to Joshua 1.7. For example, if you want encouragement, how about Joshua 1.7? 
Joshua 1.7. I don't know about you. I I mean, I can can listen, and I might hear someone that loves me, truly loves me, and wants what's best for me, and say say really encouraging things to me, and and, and it's good. But I read something like Joshua 1.7 and 9, and it doesn't compare. Their words kind of just melt away. Joshua 1.7, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Interesting that that's a command. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I just feel like saying, you know what you can do, people, with this day? You can kiss my foot. Yep, that's exactly what you were all thinking. So that's (laughs) that's a perfect example of turning to the Bible instead of Googling or calling your friends for encouragement. How about another scenario? Suppose today you're doubting your faith. Someone or something is testing your faith and you're beginning to crack. What are you going to do? How about turn to Scripture? Go to Mark 11.24, for example. Mark 11.24. And it literally it took me two seconds, folks, to find these verses. If I don't know them or where they're at, you just get a little Bible app. and just If you know a certain phrase or something like that, you type in the phrase, and you get your little list of <coughs> returns. You know, look for a word. Type in the word encourage or encouragement or something like that. Or courage or courageous. You might get something really cool. Just saying. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them. And they will be granted you. How about Psalm 34.4? You need encouragement? If your faith is cracking a little bit, if you're sensing cracks, go to Psalm 34.4. If you're worried about, you know, that silly thought that, oh, maybe he's forgotten about little old me. Go to the Word of God. Psalm 34.4. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Think of 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, right? You go to the Lord, you go to the Lord God, God is love. So says 1 John 4. What are you going to do? Be delivered from fear, because there's no fear in love. You're going to love. How about Proverbs 30, verse 5? Proverbs 30, verse 5. So instead of going to Google, instead of going and calling up your friends, instead of doing this thing, I mean, you type, be courageous in Google, chances are you're not going to get Bible scripture. You may, I could be wrong. But you're probably going to get something from the world, from some Deepak Chopra or some moron, you know, that's saddled up with Oprah who's another moron. Proverbs 30, verse 5, 
Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. I mean, come on, that's the word of God. Doesn't, you, you, you know, you could, you could get dressed up in your Sunday best and say that to the person you love the most in this world, and it still doesn't compare to you actually realizing that when you read the inspired word of God. It doesn't. So how's that for encouragement, one, one stricken with doubts? Up here on the board, more on that particular thread. <clears throat> Finding encouragement, there's nothing sweeter than the word of God for a wounded soul. Nothing more encouraging than the word imparted. Go to Proverbs 16.24. Proverbs 16.24. There's nothing sweeter. Proverbs 16.24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Healing to the bones. You want you want to feel better about your life. You want to feel better about life. You want to be physically better even. Remember I taught you about psychosomatics? You want to be physically better even? Get this straight. Get in the Word of God. That's where you're going to find your encouragement. If you struggle with depression even and these kinds of things, and I'm not talking about the chemically induced version I'm just saying, getting down on things, go to the Word. There's nothing sweeter than the Word of God for a wounded soul. Nothing more encouraging than the Word imparted. How about, let's get a little David's heart on the matter, Mr. Humility. Go to Psalm 28.1. Psalm 28.1. This is David's heart. And by the way, who was a man after God's heart? David was. So I guess if we're reading this, then... God must want us to read these things because they reflect Him, His own heart. This is what He wants from us. Psalm 28.1 To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help. When I lift up my hands toward your, solely, uh, your holy sanctuary. Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Requite them from according, uh, them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requite them from... Uh, why do I keep saying from? Requite, is it requite or requite? Anybody know? I think it's requite. I'm going to go with requite them. According to the deeds of their hands, repay them their recompense. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the deeds of his hands, he will tear them down and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts, and with my song, I shall thank him. That's David's heart. That's a beautiful thing. So let's bring all this full circle now. Here's the initial point that got us all started on this. Up here on the board, remember we're still on sanctification. We're just being really practical about it. We're going to get back to theology proper. There's no rush. That's the beauty about learning the Word of God. There's no rush. We're never going to... Okay, you ready? Newsflash. We're never going to finish the whole thing. Unless you live even longer than Bill. You don't have a prayer of even coming close. So we're not going to finish the whole thing, so just relax. 
Just saying. Anyways, we're still on sanctification. We're just doing a little practical side work. If you are being encouraged daily, then you are being sanctified daily experientially. Consider the flip side. If you are discouraged, something's wrong. God will never discourage a person for doing good. We then synthesize some scripture to amplify that point. Point one, whatever is not from faith is sin. Point two, faith is a grace gift. Point three, every gift from God is perfect. Point four, God's gifts are the seeds of good fruit, like encouragement. In other words, so if you're having a good day, if he's sanctifying you, you're going to be encouraged. If you're encouraged, it means you're being sanctified. Considering these tremendously edifying points, let us reflect on some of the things we thought about on Sunday then. We're bringing this full circle. First things first, if experiential sanctification is a practical issue, how does one get practical about it once they understand the theology? First, it's God's job to change, sanctify us, so we mustn't force the issue. Man's primary job is to remain humble, receiving what he gives us, things like knowledge, wisdom, perspective, etc., etc. There's a whole lot of things he wants to give us, not just knowledge. First things first, arrogance will try to hijack the simplicity and sanctification by inserting itself as a practical doer of it. That's the basis of perverted religion. Simply put, a believer must first accept the basic fact that God intends to change them, their person, their essence, their very sense of being. You know, five years ago, maybe you weren't being encouraged. You understand? You weren't encouraged. You weren't being. You were being encouraged, but I hope you see what I'm saying. You were in a state of encouragement. But now you are. Now you're being encouraged. Why? Because he sanctified you all the more. You're more encouraged about your spiritual walk today than you were five years ago. Why? Because the word planted, supernatural gifts, etc., etc., transcendent things going on, hooperbalo, all of these things are what he's trying to bring to the forefront. A humble person waits for these things, an arrogant one rushes it. As the pinnacle example of this, the Spirit pointed out the concept of love to us. It's kind of like, you know, the easy example when you talk about giving is always goes to something monetary stuff, you know, because the examples are there, they're easy. But love is the pinnacle on this front. So, The Spirit pointed out the concept of love to us, reminding us through Scripture, through Scripture, not through romance novels, through Scripture, that while it's true that we do think a lot about love, love is not thinking. We can't say love equals thinking. That's what he started on Sunday. He said love is not thinking. Love is something transcendent. I'll give you something from Dr. Carl Menninger psychiatrist and founder of the Menninger Clinic, has written that love, quote, love is the medicine for our sick old world. If people can learn to give and receive love, they will usually recover from their physical or mental illness. And this is a, this guy's famous, by the way. Again, love is the medicine for our sick old world. If people can learn to give and receive love, they will usually recover from their physical or mental illness. Now that guy, how much experience does he have? I imagine oodles and oodles of experience. And this is what he has to say about the concept of love. 
Now, there's a lot of people maybe that he's worked with that actually do know academically what love is by definition, but maybe they haven't been totally healed yet because they haven't actually experienced love firsthand. I don't know. Consider the simple fact that God is love. Go to 1 John 4.7. 1 John 4.7. It was inevitable we'd get here eventually. Anytime you talk about love, you're going to end up either at 1 John 4 or 1 Corinthians 13, which is Paul's discourse on love. 1 John 4.17. This is the Apostle John. Some folks, you know, consider him the apostle of love, so to speak. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows love. Okay, let me, hold on, hold on a second. I'm going to write down a word. I'm going to write down L-O-V-E on a piece of paper and I'm going to fire at your forehead. No, that's wrong, that's wrong. I've got to fill out a little definition first. Maybe I'll put a few Greek words on there. Then I'll roll it up, I'll throw it at you. Is that what he's talking about? Let us love one another. You mean we don't just throw definitions at each other? We don't just impress each other with our language? No. I think love is transcendent. I think that's what God's saying. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because He is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother also. Again, God is love. Remember that. And he's not intellectually distant. Think about that for a moment. God is love, and he's not intellectually distant. Look, you know, you're indwelled with God. Okay, does it get more personal than that? No, even sexual relations isn't that personal. He's indwelling you. Holy, right? So he's not intellectually distant. He's chosen to indwell us. That's indescribable, my friends. That's an indescribable reality. So 
the mind stops and love transcends. So he's not intellectually distant. He's not an emotional basket case either, like some people who claim they are in love are. Let me give you something from Alan Redpath, who's a uh, minister. Tells the story of a young woman who came to her pastor desperate and despondent. She said, There is a man who says he loves me so much he will kill himself if I don't marry him. What should I do? Do nothing, he replied. That man does not love you. He loves himself. Such a threat isn't love. It's pure selfishness. That's perfect. That's very true. That's not love. That's a person who's self-absorbed, who's trying to manipulate, who's trying to control. That's not love at all. Love gives. Love's not trying to control. Love gives of itself selflessly. Still put that kind of a burden on someone and say it's because I love you. No, you love yourself so much that you're willing to put that kind of a burden on another human being. That's selfishness. That's not love. Certainly not God's. So let's synthesize again, adding to what we've already noted in Scripture up here on the board. What is love then? God is love. John, 1 John 4, we just read that. God gave His Son. God is love, and He does what? He gives. He gives His very best. God loves. He gives His very best. God made us in His image. Guess what He wants to do with us when He sanctifies us? He wants us to give our very best. That's what love is. Love is not characterized by romance. It is primitively Selfless and giving, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not characterized by romance. It is primitively selfless and giving. And that's where Scripture comes in because there's a lot of people that say, oh, I definitely know love. I don't know anything about the Word of God, but I definitely know the love that's in the Bible. And God's going to say, uh-uh, you got that love from some romance novel. You get all this emotional stir-up and you don't give a hoot about the other person. You give a hoot about yourself, which is why as soon as tough times come, you're going to disappear. If you read Paul's discourse on love in 1 Corinthians 13 and you walk away stating love is merely thinking, then you are heartless. Balance statement. Love is not emotional gushing either, though it is an emotion at its very core, up here in the board. Love produces desires in us that we cannot even comprehend or articulate fully. All right, so how do you articulate your love for God? How do you articulate His love for you? Come on. How do you articulate everything that happened on that cross? Are you going to try it? Because even the Word of God says it's indescribable. Which means that you can't do it. It's indescribable. It means you don't have the language. If it was a language, if it was just a mind issue, you'd find the right language, you'd sort it out, and you'd write it down. And then you'd throw it off someone's forehead. But that's not love. God is love. 
And God says to you, it's indescribable. Love hung on a cross. That's indescribable. So, love produces desires in us that we cannot even comprehend or articulate fully. To put this a little more practically, and please don't lose sight of the fact that the Spirit's trying to show you what sanctification actually looks like. He's not satisfied. He's never been, seems to be satisfied with this congregation. <laughs> with just saying, here's the theology, now be on your way. He says, whoop, whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. Take a big scoop of it and wipe it all over. Bad visual? Oh, well. I'm bald. This is what I do. Right? Take it and jump in the deep end and swim in it and apply it to life. That's what I want. I don't want you to have a notebook full of stuff. No. I want you to be practical about sanctification. I want you to realize what sanctification means. I want you to be grateful. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to receive my grace. This is my love. And we love Hoti because he first loved us. Making some distinctions. Assuming we are what we think in the strictest sense is intellectual arrogance, which is void of heart. Love, for example, would be crippled if confined to the boundaries of human thought only. In other words, if you tried, people do it. If you say, I know love, and it's just really human thinking in definitions, you're crippling it. It can't transcend if it's got a ceiling because you put a box around it. Arrogance will argue that if you understand something academically, then you have experience with it. However, that's one of the greatest lies that Jesus blasted the religious Jews for many times in Scripture. We looked at Matthew 21, 23 to 45, where he basically tore them up and said, you don't have a heart. You have one, but it's not mine. You don't have a heart for me. You don't have a heart for truth. We noted the following from that passage. Jesus piqued the hearts of the religious people, but they reasoned with their minds and arrived at, we do not know. Had their hearts been truly changed, if they were believers, they would have understood Jesus. So Jesus expertly pointed out that the religious Jews were intellectual idiots. Likewise, simply saying that you understand God's will isn't enough. One's heart must be changed which is something God will only do for the humble. Problem with the Pharisees, they were arrogant. Problem with religious people, even today, they're arrogant. And you can always tell a religious person, it's a fake, shallow, gross love. I don't want to do this. I want to go home and take a shower and scrub it off. It's gross. I'm not encouraged by that at all. I'm discouraged by that. It's gross. The religious Jews lacked heart, you see, even though they staked the claim to God's love. Go to Matthew 21.32. Matthew 21.32. We're just jumping midstream. And they say, well, how do I know? How do I know? Well, I just wrote a blog on it, so if you haven't been reading the blogs, it wasn't this last one, it was the one before. How do I know? 
before Monica's. It have been three weeks ago. Read the end of uh, 1 John 3, the beginning of 1 John 4, to the middle. That's all you know. The Spirit will let you know. So stop asking the pastor, well, how do I know? How do I know if you know? I'm not the Spirit. Listen, I teach the Bible. Supernatural things happen in your soul. Yay. Matthew 21, 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. Up here on the board, I gave you that Greek word meta, melamai. It's a, con, uh, it's a two words, basically. Meta, change after being with. Mellow, care, be concerned with. Properly to experience a change of concern after a change of emotion and usually implying to regret. Falling into emotional remorse afterwards. These people don't have that. <laughs> he said, you don't have this. You don't have this little problem, do you? You don't have a heart, in other words, for truth. Because if you had a heart for truth, what do we do? What's the Spirit convict us of? Hey, that was wrong, and what do we do? We confess. We say, oh, yeah, that was wrong. That's what a true believer will do. One that's playing, they could care less. They might outwardly pray like they did in the synagogues and the street corners so that everybody continues to think that they're spiritual giants, but on the inside they're just shallow graves, as he would say. Their mouths are like open graves. They're whitewashed tombs for another grave metaphor. They didn't have it. And that's what Jesus was saying. He's like, I see it. You guys are hollow. There's no love. And what does Paul say about no love? He might as well be a clanging symbol. The point is that there are definite aspects of sanctification that involve our emotions. But it's not just that either. So you can't just get lopsided and say, oh, Pastor Ed said it's all about emotions. Love is emotions. No, he's saying it's not just thinking. It's not just emotions. It's not just, look, I can't describe it any better than you can. It's indescribable. My job is to give you the word of God. So the point is that there are definite aspects of sanctification that involve our emotions, but it's not just that either. Love is transcendent. It's spiritual. If that scares you, then I guess too bad. It probably means you're a religious stiff. No offense intended. Just trying to wake you up. Only a heartless person could have ever killed Jesus. For if the religious Jews had hearts for Christ... Had they been truly saved, they wouldn't have sought to murder him. They would have loved him. Scripture reveals their hearts far from God's, even though they were educated in his law, quote-unquote. They were heartless intellectuals. The summary point from Sunday was this. God, then, is after us. And think of sanctification. He wants us. He wants all of us. He doesn't, quote-unquote, experientially speaking, have all of us once saved. So he transforms us, metamorpho, right? He transforms us to be more like his son so that he does have more of us. He's after us. The end goal, ultimate sanctification is what? He has all of us in heaven. So God is after us, which although us includes our minds, where our thoughts are, us is much bigger, including our hearts, our spirits, and our souls, etc., etc., 
we ended on Sunday with this, living the spiritual life is an attitude, not a regiment. It's being in Christ, in the moment, not just knowing it, although that precedes being. We sense His presence in everything. That's what it means to live the spiritual. Think of the three different verses in Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. The fullness of God, the fullness of Christ, the fullness of the Spirit. That's what it means to live the spiritual life. Being filled with the Trinity even. The Word of Christ richly dwells in you, right? That's Colossians 3.16, etc., etc. That's what Paul's saying. It's not some intellectual elevation. It's not some emotional thing either. It's transcendent. There's emotion, there's thinking, there's heart, there's soul, there's spirit. But the whole of it is love, which transcends it all and which is indescribable. And that's the very best we're ever going to get to with words. But living the spiritual life is an attitude, not a regiment. It's being in Christ in the moment, not just knowing it. We sense His presence in everything. That's why we're grateful in everything. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. But that's what's pleasing to God. He wants you to be all in. He wants you to realize that He indwells you. He doesn't want you to forget all that He did at the cross for you. He doesn't want to forget. He doesn't want you to forget all. It's from faith to faith. That's Romans 1.17. For the righteous man shall live. Live. Experience. Life. Live, right? Life. Experience. Live. By faith. He says, and that life is going to be awesome. Why? Because I give perfect gifts and I'm the one who gave you faith. So, we're just about out of time. I'll give you one more, just so we went a little bit past Sunday, okay? If anyone asks. <laughs> I would have gone way farther if it wasn't for the circuit breaker. Just saying. Probably would have finished. Oh, I don't even have the I don't even have the right thing in here. I guess that's all. Oh, wait, here it is. The spiritual life is an issue of commitment. Until you're all in, life will be a mismatch of frustration and joy, confusion. You're going to be discouraged, not encouraged. This is how we started. Until you're all in. It's going to be this, you're going to be a yo-yo, right? You're going to be confused because some days you're going to be completely one way or the other. You're going to be unstable in all your ways, as the Bible would say. There's no stability. You can have good days and bad days, be pressed down. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about pure instability. We're talking about instability as a result of not being all in. Dipsukos, double-minded, double-souled to be accurate. That's what James was talking about. So the whole Bible says you've got to get all in. You've got to do this thing. This is the best. It's going to be how it is in heaven anyway, so you might as well learn to love God now. You might as well learn what love actually is instead of trying to put it in a notebook and then walking away off the step and then you're back to your life. That's not all in at all. That's playing a game. That's religion, 101. It's really a picture of the war being waged between your new self and your old self or your flesh. Religious people are great posers. They don the soldier's uniform, but that's as far as it goes. They are only happy when not fighting the good fight. Otherwise, as soon as the Lord says, pick up your weapons like Ephesians 6, they become miserable. 
So it's true. Religious people are worthless soldiers. They like the uniform, but they don't like the war. They don't like the, the one who's enlisted them. So this is a different form of godliness, and then I've got to quit. Religious people are experts at putting on a good face, a good show. However, they are thin veneers. Their spiritual lives mere shadows of the real thing. That's not being what he wants you to be. He's sanctifying so that you can be that person that's grateful in everything, that loves him, that isn't bound by some glass ceiling that was put there by some bogus definition that you may or may not have learned or may or may not have invented all on your own. So he's smashing all these ceilings. He's smashing all these things and saying, there's so much more to this thing. You can go up as far as you want, as quickly as you want, by humility, and I'll keep showing you more. I'm going to blow your mind. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you.